0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lord's teaching today about the lost sheep and the lost coin allows us opportunity to meditate on at least three different questions, interrelated as they are. How do we view others? How do we view ourselves? And ultimately, how do we view our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, Luke gives us the setup of what's going on that solicits this sermon from Jesus. There are two groups of two. The first group consisting of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were seen as the Jews by working for the oppressors, those who had oppressed them, and thus as traitors. And what's in view here is sinners. It's not just sinners of any kind. The Pharisees and scribes would have acknowledged that they were sinners. But these are sinners that we might better call the detestables, the despicables, those who were engaged in gross and manifest sin. This comprises the first group of two, the tax collectors and sinners. The second group of two, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, these two groups of two are each doing two things. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus to hear, while the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling against Jesus and speaking, venting their spleens. Not a few pastors have wondered if the church itself might not be divided along just these two lines. Sinners who draw near to hear Jesus, and others there grumbling and venting their spleen. What is the accusation being made by the Pharisees and scribes? It is that Jesus is receiving these tax collectors and detestable sinners, and even more than merely receiving them, he's even going so far as to eat with them kind of table fellowship and intimacy that they thought entirely out of place for anyone, let alone one claiming to be the Messiah. But Jesus' entire ministry is constructed around his receiving the undesirables The beginning of his gospel, it's a tax collector named Matthew who would later author the text, the Gospel of Matthew. By the end of Luke's gospel, it is another, Zacchaeus. Remember the little man who climbs down and repents and gives himself over to Jesus and restores all that he had stolen fourfold. But even as we heard last week, the Lord is calling to him not the spiritually fit and finished But the poor in spirit, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the outcasts of Israel, this is who Jesus is receiving and eating with. This complaint that he is doing so is met by Jesus' preaching of the lost sheep and the lost coin. His rhetorical punch is really very simple. For all the other details we might extract and we'll spend some time doing, the point is just crystalline. Which of you having a sheep that you lost wouldn't go out and find it? Which of you having a coin that you lost wouldn't sweep the house until you find it? What you would do for a sheep and for a coin, I am doing for sinners. And in the same way, this was the case culturally at the time, in the same way when you find your sheep, you'd call together your neighbors and friends and rejoice. As soon as you find your coin, you call together your friends and neighbors and rejoice. So also, instead of grumbling and criticizing me, you should be rejoicing with me that the lost sheep and the lost coins are being gathered back in. That which was lost is being found. Indeed, if you're going to grumble and be grumpy about that, you're on the wrong side of heaven. Because even the angels of God rejoice When a single sinner comes to repentance. A beautiful sermon and a beautiful message. It evokes for us that first of the three questions I introduced What do you think about others? Do you have the same heart toward them as our Lord? What do you think about others who come in with a very off-putting appearance? Now, I was old enough to remember when it was the church ladies in their white hats and bonnets who would be critical of people coming in, tattooed, looking like 'er ne'er-do-wells. But now I think today the roles have reversed and it's more likely that the fully tattooed, ripped jeans, 'er ne'er-do-well looking guys are likely to judge the grandmas and clean-cut people for being hypocritical and suspect. Be that as it may, and whatever the case may be, judging on appearances is not what our Lord Jesus does. What about when we discover quote-unquote sins of other people? You know, they don't listen to the right music. They don't dress the right way. They don't eat the right kinds of food or hold the right kinds of political opinions. And in fact, we see that they don't raise their children the right way. They send their kids to public school. Goodness gracious. Or they homeschool. Goodness gracious. What do we do when we find all kinds of quote-unquote sinners, which in reality are no sinners whatsoever? What is our attitude toward others? And what is our attitude toward others whom our Lord seeks, whom our Lord draws in, who in fact have actual and true sins? Murderers, or at least those who have had abortions. Those who in fact are engaged in adultery or some other kind of perversion. Thieves, embezzlers, serious sinners. Sinners. That our Lord Jesus is seeking and seeking to find and draw in. What is our attitude toward them? I'd like to share with you a story that a monk recounts in the first person. It's an experience he had. I hope to get as many of the details right as I can. He was serving in a monastery near to the village that he had grown up in. And he received bad news one day that one of the young women that he had gone to school with had grown up and had departed from the church and found herself as a manifest adulteress and was causing great problems in the village. The man remembered her fondly and remembered going to church with her and, and he grieved. And so the monk prayed that God would draw her up to the monastery And as he was praying, of course, he was preparing with words of Scripture and words from the church fathers, both to confront her in her sin, but also to apply the grace of God to her, to say to her that Jesus Christ is looking for you and desires to forgive you and have mercy on you. God answered his prayer And one day, this woman came up to the monastery, to the church there, and he met her, and he delivered his prepared speech, and she received it well. She started going to church there. She would bring candles and incense and oil up on the weekends. But after some time had passed, others in the church who also frequented the village came and told the monk, they said, Father, she's not right. She's coming up here on the weekends with her candles and incense, but during the weekdays, she's back down in the town fooling around with the officers. The monk became enraged at this, and the next time she came to church, he drove her away and said, What are you doing? You've desecrated this place. You don't belong here. Repent. And he sent her away from the church. Not long after, again, this is a first-person account, he says that he was struck with such great sexual temptation and desire and lust as he had never felt before in his life. Just out of the blue, he said, What is this? I've never experienced such a thing. And he prayed, and he prayed, and it wouldn't be taken away. He fasted, and he fasted, and it wouldn't be taken away. Finally, he said, I'm going to succumb to this. If I don't get out of here, I'm going up to the mountain. Maybe I'll be eaten by bears. Maybe I'll die in the cold, but either is preferable. And maybe it will alleviate this temptation. Up the mountains he goes, but neither the fear of the bears nor the cold biting at his skin was sufficient. He still burned with his supernatural lust. So frustrated, so desperate, he finally took out a little axe that he was carrying with him and tapped his foot three times. And as it started to bleed and his shoes started to fill with blood, he had hoped that the pain would drive away the lust. It was suddenly brought to his mind this woman that he had driven out. And he said, My God, I have experienced this for such a short time, and I am at my wit's end. And here, this poor child of God is tempted like this day in and day out. And he cried out to the Lord for mercy for her and for him. It's a story that articulates exactly what our Lord Himself says I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. The Son of Man came specifically for this, to seek and to save the lost. What is our attitude toward others? And what is our attitude toward ourselves? Because indeed, the two are very much related. When our Lord ends his first parable with these words saying, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You can almost hear the hyperbole, the exaggeration dripping off his mouth. There are no such 99 who are righteous, only those who think they are. With that number 99, he draws us back to the one sheep that was lost and the 99 that were left, and he invites us to reinterpret the parable and to find ourselves in the place of the lost sheep, in the place of the lost coin. Now, this is not to say that in order to understand God's grace, we need to go live like lost sheep or try to be lost coins. That's not the point at all. But the point is rather that we would in fact humble ourselves and begin to see the truth about ourselves that we, like sheep, have indeed gone astray. That even though God may have given you immense intellectual gifts, spiritually speaking, you're just as dumb as the rest of us. You're just as dumb as a sheep that gets lost and won't follow the shepherd. And There's a call to see ourselves in that lost coin too. In the darkness, and the dust, and the grime, utterly helpless and impotent to have ourselves be found. Only when we see ourselves and begin to see ourselves as we truly are can we have compassion on those around us. We have no idea what they're going through. And frankly, we have enough sins of our own to worry about. So our Lord invites us To consider how we see others and how we see ourselves. Indeed, only when we begin to see ourselves accurately as the lost sheep, as the lost coin, will we come to see Christ as he is, as the good shepherd who searches, as that woman who sweeps. And indeed, if we permit ourselves to see our Lord's parables through the lens of the cross and with a little poetic license, we can see that this good shepherd follows you and me individually, lost sheep. And he tracks us down and he finds us. And there we are, lost, helpless, unable to return or save ourselves. And into the thorns, He reaches, his hands being pierced, reaching still further because he can't yet get to us. His whole body is lacerated as with scourges. And reaching the final few inches that it takes to finally grasp hold of you, his beloved lamb, his head is wrapped in those thorns, dripping with blood and wounds of pure love for you. He picks you up as a sheep and lays you on his shoulders. The Middle Eastern shepherds say that when a sheep is lost, even when its master comes, they, the sheep won't heed his voice, won't follow, just freezes in place. So too, we ourselves. The Lord Jesus picks us up and carries us on his shoulders. Now that might sound very romantic, but that sheep is covered in mud. That sheep can weigh up to 70 pounds. That's like putting my 10-year-old son on your back. And that sheep isn't potty trained as you take it back home. So our Lord Jesus is bearing each one of us back home. Our Lord Jesus and his holy church are much like that woman who's looking for the coin that is lost Bearing the expense of lighting the lamp, the lamp and light of God's word, that cost paid by our Lord on the cross. And sweeping is our Lord until his hands are raw, and you can see what look like nail marks in his palms. And stooping down into the dust and grime, he picks up that coin, dirtying his hands, bearing our sins, and he washes it off just as he washes us in the waters of holy baptism. And in both cases, he he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice. And rejoice we do. For you individually, but for each and every sinner that he draws into his church. We rejoice. Saints, angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. There is nothing more precious, more beautiful, more wonderful than this. Our Lord is the one who searches out the lonely and afflicted, tax collectors and detestables, literal prostitutes and very much real outcasts, sinners of every kind, and only sinners. And the more we come to know ourselves as we are, the more we can understand why St. Paul can write those marvelous words that he writes. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the absolute worst. That in me, as the worst and most despicable of all Sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as a template and example for those who believe unto Him in eternal li- unto eternal life. In other words, Paul's saying, "If the Lord Jesus can bear with me, if the Lord Jesus can forgive me, then He can forgive you also." You can see his great humility and the power behind his words and why the Holy Spirit used him mightily as the greatest missionary the church has ever known. It's this humility, but this reality. I'm the worst, and he saved even me. You see, Christ doesn't begrudgingly seek you. He doesn't begrudgingly welcome you. He seeks you passionately, he welcomes you joyfully, and here he brings you healing and peace and rejoicing of sins, not only forgiven, but by him because he can, forgotten, buried as deep as the depths of the sea. With him, with all of us, we rejoice A family of sinners, redeemed and cleansed by the blood of our Savior Jesus, loved so deeply that he gave his own life that we might live. And so then, it should come as no surprise that at our Lord's table, he in fact used real wine, just as we continue to use real wine today, because there is to be real joy. That's part of it. It's inescapable. And in, with, and under that real wine, our Lord Jesus says, here is his real blood. Real blood for real sinners, for real sins, and a forgiveness that is even more real still. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,